welcome to the Knowledge Melbourne podcast. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out on this cold Melbourne night. My name is Rich Arity. I'm a science and technology journalist currently writing for the online news site New Atlas. And it's my pleasure to host this evening's discussion on urban design and film, building the cities of tomorrow. This event tonight is brought to you by MIF Talks, which is presented by The Age and Melbourne Conversations. And to open the event tonight, we're delighted to have Councillor Philip Lelou, who chairs the international engagement portfolio of the City of Melbourne. So would you please give a really warm welcome to Councillor Lelou? And also to include as a movie buff and a technology enthusiast. So this is perfect for me. Uh, thank you, Richard, for that warm introduction and good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Councillor Philip Lilo, and on behalf of City of Melbourne, I'm delighted to welcome you here to the Wheeler Centre tonight for the latest instalment of the Melbourne Conversation Series in partnership with the Melbourne International Film Festival MIF Talks program. Before I get on the way, uh, I'd like to respect the knowledge that we are here on the land of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge our esteemed panellists, uh, Alex Paris. Uh, Professor Angela Ndillis, uh, Vanessa Tohola, and Dr. Stephen Rowley, and thank them for making the time to be here to discuss how cinema perceives and portrays future cities. Are silhouette cities of tomorrow casualties of our culture, or are they really shaping and in informing urban development in the real world? Whether it's science from science fiction, big budget movies from the 90s, or today's blockbusters, one recurring theme plays a major role in these futuristic cities, and that's technology. Now, before I get on the way, um, I'm not sure how many of you would have watched uh, Beyond 2000. Um, I'm actually wait, still waiting for my flying car. Um, back to the future. Where's the hoverboard? Where's the power lace? Right. So what can we actually learn from cities like Orbit City and the Jetsons, or from Minority Report starting, starring Tom Cruise setting Washington in 2054? or one of the most futuristic films of all time, and one, probably one of my favourites, uh, Ridley Scott's 1982 film Blade Runner, set in the not-too-distant future of 2019, which gives a glimpse into the future. <laughs> so if that's what I'm looking forward to, uh, I think I'll, uh, I'll, I'll sleep on it. Los Angeles becomes a city of robots hidden among humans while flying cars soar above overcrowded streets. Will we want to actually live here? Probably not. But how much longer until this becomes a reality? These films all address some of the most biggest predicaments facing local government and urban planners. How do we accommodate booming population and growth, improve transport, foster business and a prosperous economy, support innovation and make government government, government more transparent? These are all actual challenges facing us with us right now, which is why the City of Melbourne is proud to partner with the MIV to bring you this particular event. Tonight, we will hear from, all film, from a filmmaker, an urban planner, a researcher, and a technologist as they discuss the films that help us imagine the cities of tomorrow. Thank you. Enjoy the night. Thank you, Councillor, for that wonderful introduction. We've got just an hour to race through a whole heap of films and ideas, so we'll jump straight into it, but up front I'll let you know that we'll talk for uh, about 40 minutes probably, and then I'm going to throw it over to you guys. So we want to really kind of fit in some audience questions, so if anything pops into your mind or sparks an idea over the course of our conversation, just kind of, yeah, note it, and we'll get to some questions later in the session. But without further ado, let me introduce our panel and I'll invite you to welcome them all at the end after the introductions. So to my left, we have Alex Preuss, the visionary Australian filmmaker whose credits include The Crow, Dark City, iRobot and many more. Alex's recently restored debut feature film, Spirits of the Air, Gremlins of the Clouds, screens at 6.30pm tomorrow night at Acme, so 
please make sure to catch that. It's a really wonderful chance to see a restored version of an amazing feature film. And next to Alex is Angeline Dalianis. She's a research professor at Swinburne University of Technology. Her research focuses on film entertainment media technologies with an outlook on how they mediate our experience of the world around us. And then we have Stephen Rowley. Stephen's a researcher and urban planner. His book, Movie Towns and Sitcom Suburbs, Building Hollywood's Ideal Communities, was published in 2015. And finally, we have Vanessa Taholka. Vanessa is a technology commentator, producer, and presenter of Byte Intuit, a radio show on Triple R, and a board member of Digital Arts Watch. So could you please give a warm welcome to all our panelists. So let's get straight into it, shall we? Let's, let's kick things off. I want to kind of, I guess, start with a quick chat about the big influential film that will kind of hover over everything tonight, I think, and we need to kind of, I think, cover off on it straight away, and that's Fritz Lang's 1927 masterpiece, Metropolis. So I'll kind of start with you, maybe, Angela, because um, I know you've done a bit of work yep. with Metropolis. Can you kind of tell us why has this film been so influential as a cinematic vision for almost a century now? What about it has been so strong and powerful and influenced a whole host of people from architects to designers to other filmmakers? Well, despite the fact that H.G. Wells actually called it a silly film, um, it, it has actually gone on to influence um, filmmaking, especially science fiction genre. Uh, and it's not that there were no science fiction films prior to this, but it's the approach that Lang took, um, along with his production crew, to the design of the film, its themes. Um, the, there's so many sort of themes and, and representations in this film that are repeated later on in cinema and really, in, in a sense, culminate with uh, Blade Runner in 1982. Um, and one of, the, one of the things I find interesting is how Fritz Lang used the actual cityscapes themselves to, and project them into the future. And he visited New York in 1924 before the film um, production had begun. And the story of Metropolis was um, sort of underway with... Uh, his, his wife wrote the story, Thea von uh, Harbu. Um, and when he hit New York, he was just blown away. And he imagined this city, its verti the verticality of the city and its lights and the darkness in the evening and as a kind of future city. So that was one of the things that he then took back with him to Germany and um, developed in terms of production design. The other thing was visiting Hol the Hollywood studios and there he picked up, on, uh, picked up many new um, cameras and lots of you know, production tools. Uh, because he felt that in order to make this the kind of film that he wanted it to be, he needed the latest in technology. And he went back to Germany and he just upped the ante on the kind of production value. Um, and he imagined, you know, the, the first, I guess, dystopian city um, in cinema. Uh, and, and created this sense of hierarchies of the classes and created um, his representation of the robot Maria is something that has continued to influence science fiction cinema from C-3PO, and Lucas has admitted being influenced by the, you know, the metallic Maria, um, to um, you know, Robocop and even iRobot, I think, in a way, except they're, they're kind of more plasticky, the, you know, the look of the, um, the robots in, in iRobot. So it's extremely important as a film. There are just so many sort of themes and... Um, and the visuals of the film and trying to create this sense of, of scale that was radically new for that time um, and, and progresses in cinemas developed further after that. And Alex, Metropolis has been a, a big influence on you and your filmmaking. I think before we kind of maybe get into the nitty gritty of a, a film like Dark City, can you talk about what Metropolis means to you as a, as a filmmaker in terms of how it influenced your visions? Um, well, we were talking about the, um, the psychology, and sorry, I feel like I should have a piano in front of me, and I feel like I'm doing... <laughs> I feel like I'm Elton John doing <laughs> vocals on stage. Um, but um, we were talking about the psychology of architecture. 
I'd like to start with a joke before I get really in, incredibly serious. Um, and um, the psychology of architecture, and particularly, particularly sort of totalitarian architecture, and, and I think Fritz Lang may have been influenced by New York, and um, in fact the images that we're showing at the moment are mm -hmm. um, uh, a guy called Hugh Ferris, who we all rip off in, in movie land, we, we all copy his work, and he's kind of a contemporary of Fritz Lang, who's an American architect, uh, I don't know what he actually built, but he's famous for these imaginary uh, urban landscapes that are quite magnificent, as you can see. And that one looks suspiciously like Fritz Lang's Metropolis, doesn't it? Mm. Um, and so I think, I think Lang was influenced by him very much. Um, and also probably, probably by what was going on in his homeland, which was the Third Reich. Um, uh, Albert, Albert Speer, who was the uh, Hitler's architect, and, 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 and Hitler was um, obsessed with, uh, with um, you know, classical, the classical, uh, classical art, and to, to the point where, you know, if, if the art didn't, art or architecture didn't conform with his sense of what was beautiful in art, he dismissed it as, as, as degenerate art, you know. Um, so I think at, at, at some level, Lang would have definitely been very... He certainly was very politically aware. And in fact, he fled um, uh, Nazi Germany at an early point. Um, uh, uh, and so, you know, I think when he came to design this world that was basically a hierarchy of, of uh, you know, the rich living above ground and, and in these wonderful utopian-style cities and the the poor living in the sort of deep, dark trenches, the workers living in the deep, dark trenches. He was obviously very influenced by, I think, the totalitarian regime that he was uh, finding himself living through, you know. So when it came to Dark City, I think one of the main reasons I was so influenced by, uh, by, by Lang and also by Hugh Ferris specifically and, and by many other people um, was, but, but with Lang in particular, Metropolis in particular, is because the, you know, Dark City itself is also about a totalitarian regime. They're not Nazis, they're aliens. Mm -hmm. um, but they're still, they're still sort of wanting to manipulate humanity and, and manipulate society. And, and in fact, Dark City is sort of the ultimate expression of, of that kind of uh, control over the individual, the psyche of the, in, the individual, you know. That idea uh, of architecture being a, a, an expression of a system of control and, and, and controlling people through architecture, I think was really fascinatingly realised in Dark City. And I know, Stephen, you've described Dark City as an urban planner's dark fantasy. Can you yep. kind of elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, so I guess, you know, you get into urban planning because you're interested in the way... Uh, people are affected by their environment and the way you can build environments that are going to be better for people. Um, and, you know, the flip side of that, and this is, you know, something that Alex has just alluded to, is the, um, you know, this notion of architectural determinism. So, firstly, just having too much faith in the power of architecture to solve a whole lot of social problems that, that planners try and wrestle with in cities, but also then the really dark side of that, which is the power to control people in malicious ways. Um, and there are lots of strains of that that people look at in urban planning in terms of, you know, militarisation of public space, design, you know, designing places so that homeless people can't sleep in them, all the way down to the much broader kind of social controls of things like fascist architecture and that, and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, Dark City, I think, is really interesting to me for, I think, two reasons. The first is... Um, that idea of a hidden group of all-powerful beings that are essentially experimenting on people and controlling people and manipulating people by manipulating the built environment, which is a... That's where the urban planner's dark fantasy thing comes into, into it. I guess the other thing was that I find really interesting about that film is um, because my interest is in, as an urban planner, but as an urban planner who looks at film, I'm very much interested in the way we tell stories about film that then... Uh, shape the way we understand the environment. And that's very central to Dark City. There's the, the reference in that movie to the fact that the city is constructed out of overlaid memories of different mm. cities at different times, I think is the way one of the, the creatures in that movie puts it. Um, and, and that is actually a description of the way we understand the city. We understand the city from our own lived experience, but it's also a, 
an overlapping accumulation of media depictions of different cities at different times. You have an understanding of what Paris is like and New York is like, even without ever having been there. And that's where I think that intersection of cinema and film becomes really interesting. What are the stories that we tell ourselves in film uh, that then inform the way that we actually build and live in cities? Yeah, I think um, we'll talk maybe a bit later about cities that are, are built and conceived from scratch. But mm. I think Dark City is a, is a really great example of a, of a fictional city that's a, that's a mashup of everything we know. Mm. Can you talk, Alex, a little bit about how you built that design and, and how you worked out kind of this really unique mashup of architectural styles to create a, a familiar but unfamiliar space? It all came from the, it, it all came from the narrative of the story, which was... Um, the, the notion that they've built the the environment from uh, stealing the memories of the human subjects of their experiment, and and so I figured there'd be like me memories from different eras, and and we kind of we so we could mash different different styles and different eras into this one this one place. And I think we were talking before how I, I wanted it to feel unreal. I wanted it to feel fabricated because that's exactly what it is, you know, and. Um, uh, to the point where in, in most movies with visual effects and sets, etc., you're trying to create a believable reality. I kept trying to create an unbelievable reality. I kept trying... I kept wanting things to look more... I wanted more artifice, you know, because I, I wanted uh, that, that sense that it was made... This, this place was made. It wasn't, it wasn't real, you know. Um, um, at the end of the day, though, it's, it's set in a kind of... I mean, there are different eras of cars and architecture and all sorts of things. You can't really tell because it all sort of blends in together in the shadows. And at the end of the day, I just wanted, like, a lot of guys in cool fedora hats and trench coats and, <laughs> and, and all that. So I basically stole mostly from the 30s and 40s, yeah. you know. Rich, could I just um, yes. mention one of the, the powerful things about science fiction cinema, and again, it has, this has its beginnings with, with Fritz Lang, is in a, a built environment you have the formal properties of architecture and that's, you know, that can you know, manipulate and affect people's emotions and how they interact with it. But cinema also has the advantage of lighting and editing and in, with lighting especially, Lang drew upon German Expressionist uh, traditions and in his move to the States he takes that tradition with him um, and it starts to influence film noir. And there you have this kind of, you know, the, the, dark and, the darkened spaces um, that are sort of lit up and become concrete manifestations of inner turmoil. And I think that becomes really crucial to many dystopian science fiction films. Um, more, more contemporary ones are Blade Runner and, and Dark City, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think I want to kind of zoom in for a moment and chat a little bit about technology in terms of, of how technology is represented in science fiction film and how it, it, it affects the construction of these cities that we build. So I think a, a good place to start would be to think about urban transportation and, and how film conceives of how we're going to get around cities in the future. So uh, we can start with kind of cars a little bit and I think, Alex, I'd like to initially talk about the a way that you imagined a future city in iRobot, which was a city in 2035. And your film, I think, presented one of the best projections of autonomous cars and underground highways that I've really kind of seen realised on film. And it's a vision that I think is increasingly looking quite accurate in terms of the directions that we're heading. So I'd like to ask you kind of what work you did on thinking about these aspects of a city in 2035 and did you consult with some futurists to get such a kind of accurate hypothetical vision of how we'll be traveling around cities in the future yeah we did um we did we did a lot of that um but but the 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 idea i guess the overall philosophy of that film is that we wanted it to be a very grounded future one that you could totally believe in so i didn't want to get too too crazy with anything. So no flying um, cars. There were no flying cars, no. And and uh, and I wanted the robots to be very much the 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 focus of the technology in in the in the movie. You know, because that's what the movie's about. It's called iRobot. So, um, 
but um, so in terms of the transport, uh, we uh, I had some crazy ideas. Uh, I wanted it to be uh, an automated system, but I wanted it, the the world to exist at the point where automated driving was kind of still pretty fresh in the world. It hadn't, they hadn't been doing it for very long. Um, and, I, and for those who remember, who maybe remember the movie, there's Will Smith's character has there's a backstory about him uh, having to save this girl from a from a horrible car wreck that occurs when a truck driver falls asleep at the wheel. You know, so we're talking about something that happened a few years before the story, and at that point, obviously, the truck driver didn't have automated driving, and it became the whole backstory became about sort of human error and the robot, in fact. Say, saves him in that particular situation, doesn't manage to save the girl, you know. So that kind of fed in very nicely into the story, you know. So, so that was kind of a, an interesting uh, beginning to the thing. And then the whole notion of, um, uh, you know, the, spheric, the, the cars have got spherical wheels in the movie, again came out of uh, a, a somewhat flippant idea because it all stemmed from me conceiving of this... Uh, car chase in the movie that happens in a tunnel when there when there is a bunch of robots attacking uh, Will's car and I had this I, I, you know you wake up as a director you wake up in the middle of the night with these really strange ideas and sometimes they're okay and sometimes they're terrible but I had this idea of the car spinning around and fl and having all these ro robots that had attached themselves to it flying off in every direction so I thought well a normal car is not going to be able to do that but if the car had spherical wheels it could you know and then we could park the car really easily. It would be really wonderful. And so the whole thing from the spherical wheels came out of that notion. And then, of course, we managed to get Audi to design and build the car for us because the best way to get a convincing-looking futuristic car is to use real, real car makers. They, they just do it every, time, every day of their lives, you know. So we had the Audi guys come over from Germany and I pitched the spherical wheel to them, which they actually thought was really cool, you know. So I'm fully expecting that that will end up in a real car eventually. <laughs> yes. You know. um, Vanessa, I'll receive no royalties, of no, course. <laughs> no, it's all Audi. Yeah. Can I ask you, Vanessa, in terms of kind of where current technological innovations are, how, how do you see future cities in terms of transportation kind of projecting from all the kind of things that are being bounced around now? Because there's, there's a lot of interesting ideas in, that are being floated and some may never eventuate but yeah there's some interesting things. I think that uh, in a similar way that you don't want to be determinist in your space it's the same with technology so the technology provides us with really interesting solutions but it still doesn't solve problems that we haven't solved for ourselves so if we haven't got a, a society that's committed to a really great public transport system or something how is the Hyperloop going to change that for us? It's like, well, Hyperloop might be one great way of doing mass, fast, you know, efficient transportation over certain distances. Um, but what's it really replacing in everyday society that people would use? Mm -hmm. It's probably not replacing the commute to work. It's probably more replacing, you know, moving minerals or things around vast distances, that sort of thing. So there's those sort of things going on. We've seen lots of really fun experiments with um, share schemes. So, you know, O-Bike was a bit of a, a tragedy here. People forget that bicycles are technologies. But there have been a lot of experiments with um, motorised bikes and with scooters with various degrees of success around the world, and that's changing things. I think if you look at films like Her, uh, you start to see what sci-fi is imagining as our future urban environment and how we get around. And there's a lot of greened walkways and uh, really elevating the pedestrian within the environment. And then we know that there's other things moving around there. So if we look at contemporary cities, like um, lots of places in China at the moment, they've banned vehicles over a certain size from being within their cities for environmental reasons. They're trying to get some of that, that pollution and that waste out of the cities and the traffic out of the cities. But they're using things like, um, you know, cute little three-wheeled vehicles that you used to see in the, in the back of, little, of Tuscany. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing those sort of things re-emerge in new, more futuristic formats as electric vehicles which only have a certain distance they can cover that are perfect for deliveries in, you know, the central, uh, you know, business district. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. We've still got the same problems. We're just trying to solve them with new gadgets and things. Mm. 
Yeah, there's, there's some ideas, I guess, about moving cars out of cities and, and future cities kind of shifting cars away from the, the central kind of centres of cities. As an urban planner, Stephen, like, mm. what do you kind of think in terms of the, the reality of removing cars from cities? Uh, well, that's a big question. I'm for it. Uh, <laughs> no, look, I mean, I think... I guess what I'd just say is the overarching comment about this is... Um, you know, I, I guess urban planners are such downers, right? You know, I, I hear this kind of discussion and, you know, I, I think there are so many challenges with the city that you... I think we get pretty cautious of the... Um, uh, I guess what seem like the magic bullet fixes of technology and I think the, um, the autonomous car debate is going to be... or discussion is going to be about... Um, yeah, the realities of particularly the sort of the last 5% of what you need them to do and the intelligence that's needed to do that and how autonomous they can really be. But then I think there's a whole lot of societal discussions about how we use autonomous cars and how much that socialises the car supply versus, you know, private car ownership, um, how much of our... A lot of our built form, you know, my colleague at RMIT, uh, Liz Taylor, has done a lot of research that was in the paper just a couple of weeks ago about how much space is given over to parking of cars in the city, um, how we reclaim that space. So there are all sorts of debates in that space that come about. But I guess if, you, if I sort of loop back to film, I think what's really interesting is that um, you get all these ideas that are, you know, incredibly visually seductive and perhaps planners are slightly uh, downbeat about this kind of stuff because there's such a long history. You know, Spear was mentioned by Alex, but, you know, Le Corbusier, these sort of gleaming cities um, and, uh, you know, these really sleek futuristic projections that um, in reality often tend to not pan out, but, you know, you also get these film depictions where there's always a dirty underside of that kind so of... So you're like a bit sceptical that people will, will let go of their car ownership? Oh, well, they might uh, get made to let go of them, of course. So, you know, uh, but, um, yeah, I, look, there, there are so many challenges. It's so I think deeply we can, ingrained. Yeah. I think we should hope that someone comes up with an even better technology mm. than the automated car. And, and my hope is, because I, I like my car, and my hope is that, that they'll come up with a... Well, maybe filmmakers, filmmakers should come up with ideas. Maybe I'll make a film about a guy who invents a way of miniaturising your car. So you, you drive your car, you get out of your car and you press a button and it shrinks down to pocket size. You put it in your pocket and go to work and then it grows again when you go home, you well, know. I was going to say so, my favourite uh, depiction was George Jetson in The Jetsons used to drive to work on his flying car yeah. and then it would shrink down and it oh, would well, actually there you go. Someone's done it. become <laughs> a, a little suitcase and he'd take his little suitcase Perfect. Well, let's do that. Let's invent that technology and then we can I really want to see solve all of our problems. <laughs> so I guess let's... Continue that thought and maybe jump into the airspace of a future city and <laughs> kind of think about what will be going on up in the air. So I guess, Vanessa, again, like what, what do you envision the, the future city's airspace to look like in terms of kind of maybe the, uh, an elaboration of the drone technology look, that's moving? at the moment moving? it's all about drones. It's obviously they've come out of um, a lot of military applications and there's really interesting things happening in that space. In films and in real life, you're seeing lots of films about snipers lately with interesting uses of drones, drones that look like birds. These are actually based on things that we know have been worked on um, for DARPA. So there is a hummingbird drone that exists. You know, there are other ones, you know, some for surveillance and some with actually attack capabilities that will fit in the palm of a soldier's hand. So pretty terrifying stuff there. In terms of our everyday urban environments, um, we're increasingly seeing drones used for their ability to carry various types of sensors. So as we try and cope with the changes that are coming towards us with climate change, I think that we'll see a lot of them deployed in emergency response. You know, we're already seeing that in terms of, you know, um, helping to react to emergencies. But they could have a proactive role. You can imagine the Bureau of Meteorology, you know, sending, sending drones out and using them to sort of test areas. And uh, in China, there's a lot of applications in terms of air quality that's, that's one thing. Mm. Um, and as we see, like, miniaturisation, there's this interesting space around, like, nano drones and, and what can happen with those. So I haven't seen much use of that in films yet, but where I've seen more of that come out is in um, science fiction writing 
where people like Neil Stevenson talk about webs being created of like nanobots and bots fighting wars and people breathing in bots and having protective spaces where, where drones can't travel into them. And that's where it starts to get interesting for me where the potential applications butt up against people's desires for privacy or for, you know, drone-free living, whatever that entails. So, so I think those tensions are really interesting. Is like you said, the science fiction film hasn't really kind of delved into the idea of airspace in future cities outside of flying cars, really, kind of, that's been... I think we're seeing it in TV because we're in the renaissance of television at the moment. So if we look at things like Black Mirror, there you're seeing really interesting explorations of drones and nanobots and other things, yeah. Is, is, does anyone on the panel think flying cars are actually going to be a real thing? Like that idea of the... Uh, of Back to the Future 2, for example, where we have the same highways that we normally have now just up in the air. And the, the fifth element, which is basically just tiered up our streets into just busy flying car tiers. Is that a realistic proposition or is that just a, a, a weird fictional niche that will never really happen? Like maybe, Stephen, like as, a, as an urban planner, can you even imagine the planning a city with tiered roads? Um... Yeah, I might put that in weird fictional niche, but uh, <laughs> it's not the fun answer probably. But, yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to um, what the questions are for society about uh, how you manage that. How many cars do you put up in the air? What keeps them apart? I mean, I guess you have to assume they're going to be automated. The whole Back to the Future 2 idea that everyone's just driving around up there and not having a lot of accidents uh, themselves. Stephen, so you have to automate it somehow, yeah. yeah. Is yeah. there a lot of pressure on urban planners to think about the energy requirements of these sort of things? Well, I guess that's why I get a bit uh, cautious about these kind of like very futuristic seeming solutions. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're probably headed into a bit of an era of slightly more downbeat uh, kind of solutions. But, um, uh, you know, and again, it's, it's this idea of, again, the, the, the cinema studies person in me goes, you know, but these are so visually enticing ideas. So that's what we used to think about the jetpack and everyone's like, where's my jetpack? We have jetpacks and they're a terrible idea. So I think that's, that's quite funny when we think about flying cars. I think I put them in the same box. Like maybe they're just not that great an idea. Otherwise we would have worked harder on them. Uh, I, I think we will have flying cars myself. Um, <laughs> sorry, to I beg to differ. Um, <laughs> And I also think we'll have automated cars much sooner than we think we're going to have them. I mean, I've, I've had these discussions with many people over the years and, you know, my, my feeling is that computer technology is extremely good at orchestrating a very complex network of unlimited moving parts and integrating that all together. And that's the way you need to look at a city and the way you need to look at it, certainly a traffic system, a transport system. Uh, it's not about the one train, it's about the network of trains all fitting together, all working together so that, you know, little differences can be adjusted instantaneously across the entire network, you know. That's a, a computer mind, that's AI thinking. That's not... Hu humans don't... Well, we can't even comprehend that. No individual can comprehend that. Um, so at the moment, our transport is based on many, many individuals, and some of them control a lot of staff in, in these control centres, but still it comes down to a lot of individuals, millions of individuals, all kind of doing their own thing and having to conform to a plan that's sort of orchestrated by an overseeing computer program. Well, as... as as dystopian as it might sound, I, I believe that we hand that over to the computer program. We let the AIs do that. I think they're going to be much, much better at us than doing that. And I think once we accept that as, as humans, um, it sounds like I'm talking about the ro robot apocalypse and I'm trying to sell it to everyone. <laughs> this is I'm literally not, I'm the actually, plot of iRobot. I'm actually a human being. But, but no, but the reality is, it, it, it's a, it, this, is this is inevitable. I mean, it's like we can discuss about the relative merits of it. And, of course, I can see both sides of the... I can see the, the negatives of what I've just posited. Um, but but it's an, I think it's an inevitability. I think that's, that's where we're all going, you know. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, the AI program that runs this, the, uh, the traffic system of a city... And I'm talking about hundreds of years in the future. 
will be really good at orchestrating multiple levels of traffic all flying around at the same time. And there'll be far fewer accidents and far fewer fatalities. Of course, they might just be softening us up to then kill us in the end, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. You know. can, can I just pose a question on that? Like, so my urban planning brain, brain is going, is that the less interesting part of the question? in the sense of, well, what's the human stuff that's happening down under that? Because, you know, the history of urban planning and the reason why we're so depressing when we're invited to forums like this is, you know, <laughs> people assuming you're going to get a technological solution that fixes everything. And, you know, um, a lot of the dreams of mobility we have about flying cars are the same dreams of mobility as we had about, well, regular cars and freeways, right? So, um, you know, I think the question of whether we can do it is almost a less interesting question. The question is what's happening at ground level underneath all that. That's one reason why Blade Runner is so interesting. Well, the, you know, what's happening at street level. The, the yeah. only thing that will make that scenario not happen is if we literally have nowhere to go, if we don't, we don't need to go anywhere, you know, mm. which is the whole other alternative, mm. okay? The virtual That's the, alternative. But look at the extreme of that version, right? All, the, all those thousands of cars flying around in Fifth Element where are all those people going, right? Mm. You have to ask yourself that because eventually artificial, t artificial intelligence will take over quite a bit of our, our, our workload, you know. We don't have to go to the movies anymore. We can, we can watch them at home on Netflix. Yeah, you know? why would you even need to go to an um, office to work? Exactly. I mean, you know, and, and you, you, know, you, you don't have to go up to the takeaway shop because you've got all these bike riders riding around delivering it for you, you know. So, so you know, you can posit that version of the future as well, you know. I think that one is actually a little scarier, quite mm. frankly. So it's almost the, the Ready Player One Ready style... Ready Player One, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, the situation of kind of just, we don't yeah. leave our spaces, but, we just inhabit virtual reality. But science fiction talks about... I'm talking about extremes. Science fiction talks about extremes. I'm not an urban planner, I'm a, I'm a science fiction mm. storyteller. Mm. Um, and we, talk, we, we, we like to talk about extremes because extremes are more fun in a movie, you know. They're interesting. That's why we don't make a lot of movies about utopias. We make movies about dystopian stories because that's where drama is, right? Um, so these, both of those two extremes that I've posited are both kind of interesting, you know. Um, I hope we don't end up with either of them, but I fear that we will end up with one or the other. Well, I think it's also kind of worth maybe quickly touching on the, the idea of AI and networked cities and kind of, I guess, surveillance cities. And again, Vanessa... Could you talk a little bit about how our cities are increasingly getting wired up and how the, the minority report future of being constantly surveilled and tracked and tied into kind of customised ads is actually kind of the, the future of now? Well, it's really funny. It's, it's even our past. So if we look at 1998, uh, we think that London was the first city to really go all out on their CCTV centralised surveillance of their population. And now, you know, millions and millions of cameras across the UK, we estimate that there's about half a million within London itself. And that's all, that's all sort of synced up. And there are, there are questions about the efficacy of these things in terms of um, capturing kind of people's moving spaces through the environment. Uh, but there was an example in a Chinese stadium just this year where someone who was in trouble for some sort of white-collar financial discrepancies was picked out of a stadium of 60,000 people. Uh -oh. and, uh, and he himself sort of said, oh, I was surprised that they found me here. I didn't think that that was possible. Oops. <laughs> you know. it, so this is our world now. Um, I did try and do a bit of research into where people are really resisting having highly surveilled cities and Google wasn't very helpful. So I didn't turn up a lot of things. I'm sure there's some things out there. If you've got ideas, tweet at me, let me know. But it was really hard to find anything where people would push back successfully. Australia ourselves um, have recently been doing a bit in the National Facial Recognition Database. So that will be integrating um, driver's licence databases and passport photo databases, presumably with um, things that people bring in so that it will be a request, uh, on a request basis. So it's like, who is this person or is this person who they say they are? But then there's the other level, which is not just about policing, but it's about like emotion, like sentiment analysis. So when we look at your minority report with the ads flying at Tom Cruise's character as he wanders through, you know, spaces, we are looking at the reactions to his emotions as they play across his face and go, oh, he really doesn't like Amex or, you know, he's having, he's having these expressions... 
and that's another area that's that's really um, emergent at the moment. I, I want to kind of jump again to a different idea, and that's the idea that the current cities that we're building today are actually heavily influenced by dystopian science fiction architecture. So maybe kind of Angela, could you talk a little bit about how cities like Dubai and Shanghai and some of these new urban spaces are being influenced by science fiction architecture and maybe even kind of talk about the, the implications of what it means to model our cities on films that are, are dystopian and not exactly positive or balanced. It's funny, um, Dubai, the, the sort of the official take is that it prides itself on being a city that looks like a science fiction city. Uh, and in 2016, uh, there was the release of the film Ariel, which was set in Dubai. Uh, and I think Star Trek Beyond, the Yorktown, was set in Dubai, and you wouldn't have to change the sets at all uh, because of the, the, you know, the look of the, the space. But I think the origins of a lot of this have a start with the impact of Blade Runner uh, and that neon light that that um, sort of connects spaces that are spatial, spatially disjointed. And it begins to influence many urban planners. And the one that I've done a lot of work in is the um, John Jurd, the LA-based uh, architect and urban, urban designer, uh, and his, his company. And he was responsible for uh, building Universal City Walk, all, all of the Universal City Walks started in LA. And there you've got that classic neon light that runs across shops in that space um, where you, beget, you begin to get this you know, look of a kind of you know, theme park design of an urban, urban space. Uh, and he extended that into many um, urban destination spaces that he's built across Japan and um, even Australia. And, and in fact, our Crown Casino's got that same kind of logic. Uh, but it removed, the, the, the dystopian element is definitely removed in this. Uh, so it's like a stylistic element's taken up. And then, um, you know, it, it, this, this idea of an idyllic kind of space, a leisure space, um, it, this is what these kind of science fiction spaces or influences um, sort of represent, I guess. But anyone who loves their science fiction knows that even it's usually those glitzy, super clean spaces that have the darkest kind of dystopia lying underneath it. Um, so it, it's quite a contradictory thing because you know, we can see those spaces and you know, with the Crown Casino, for example, you see it as you know, corporate um, gambling money, big corporation... Uh, and the kind of control that's, that's happening on that street level with surveillance, um, despite the sort of spectacular elements of the architecture and the way technology controls the, you know, the exploding pyres that um, you know, do their thing down the, down the street. But Dubai is doing some really crazy stuff. They've, they've started a space agency and they've um, decided to train astronauts as well. And they've actually built a space... It's not complete yet, but it's um, planning to colonise Mars. So it's a kind of, I guess, urban environment for Mars, projecting it... I can't remember what year they're, they're um, aiming towards, but it's basically testing out how we'd live if we were on Mars or when we get eventually to Mars, um, which is pretty kooky. And they're, they're testing out a lot of these kinds of what we imagine as science fiction concepts... Um, a lot of robots are being used in Dubai for various things from service to um, sort of social robots. They tested the first flying car, flying taxi last year. Didn't hear much about it afterwards. I'd imagine it wasn't too successful. So, yeah, that's, there's a lot of things happening. And the first um, UAE uh, astronauts are going to the International Space Station next year. So, we're obviously, we're running out of time, like... Just before I kind of throw out to the audience and you guys for some questions, I want to kind of ask the panel, just generally, I want a kind of a bit of a speculative vision at this point. What do you guys think 30 years from now in about 2050 our cities are going to look like in terms of is there going to be... A, is there a key technological thing right now that will really dominate the evolution of the next 30 years of a city or is it going to pretty much 
look like it looks today with maybe smaller phones or something like that? So maybe can I start with you, Vanessa? I think about this a bit in terms of the personality of different cities and I don't think those essential personalities will change too much. You will have cities that look like Hong Kong and you'll have cities that look like Copenhagen and they'll have very different design aesthetics. But I do think that some of the, the minor inconveniences and things, they're going to be things that... Uh, Lots of things that we take for granted as friction in our lives won't be there in 30 years. And that could be all of the times that we have to have cards out swiping to get into things and out of things and, and to prove our identity. And whether that's because we've implanted things or because facial recognition lets us into things or because this proximity analysis of something and it knows behaviourally where you'll be, I think that there'll be some design solutions enabled by technology there that will make things a bit more seamless and that's one thing I can imagine. Stephen, as, as an urban planner, what, what is a city going to look like in 30 years? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a, a going to be a fundamental wrestle between these kind of technological things um, and the scope for them to change things and the, I guess, and you know, this is why urban planners don't get invited to parties, you know, and I'm depressing myself even. But, you know, the, 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 the fundamental tension is going to be about how that technological progress interplays with, you know, an age of scarcity and, you know, oil deprivation, energy scarcity, carbon scarcity, environmental collapse, potentially, all those kind of things. Um, the other thing I just would say, just really quickly, is I think the other thing is that the fundamentals of how humans like to live don't change and this is what I mean about what the humans are doing underneath a lot of these things that we're talking about were sort of early 20th century ideas originally um, people worked out pretty early in the 20th century that you know changes in communication technology and transport technology might let people radically decentralize um, and there's been a fundamental resistance of human beings to that kind of decentralization um, because people still like that sort of street-level, day-to-day, face-to-face interaction. So I think there's a certain element of urbanism that will never go away while we survive. Uh, <laughs> Angela, what's, what do you think? I think? Like Vanessa, I think there's going to be more integration between the technology in our bodies and I think more emphasis on biotechnologies. But um, further from that, I, for me, and it's probably because it's one of the areas that I'm interested in being a film person, um, the whole idea of virtual technologies and artificial realities are going to uh, become more and more important in our lives. And we're seeing that starting to take off now. So the idea of us walking, you know, along, uh, uh, along the street and you'll be able to layer it with, you know, augmented um, realities and access information about a particular building or... Um, so become sort of Google on demand in the street, if you like. But also escape spaces like VR where I guess there you're dealing with a kind of virtual virtual urban realities of all sorts, you know, across the, the your, um, domain, yeah. And, Alex, if, if you got the opportunity to, to make a film set in 2050... To to the, one <laughs> <laughs> the one that I've actually had three people to think of an answer for. Well, uh, oh, like, yeah. if you had to make a film set in yeah. 2050, what... <laughs> and, it, and when I said make it a realistic 2050 city, what, what would it look like to you? I think, I just, I think I've answered the question in a way, because I think it's one of two options. Either we're all flying around a whole bunch of flying cars like Fifth Element, like a bunch of headless chickens, not knowing where we're going, or we're sitting at home, virtual reality, ordering a lot of takeaway food that gets delivered to our house by an automated car and a robot. Or a combination of the two. I think it's going to be one of those two options. Yeah. So, I'm kind of kidding, but, but anyway. But not. <laughs> yeah, but not. Yeah. Because I think we're already, we're already there. I think we're... we're the, I, I don't agree that we live the way we've always lived. I think we live very differently now. Uh, even in my own lifetime, I think we, we live... The way I live is quantifiably 180 degrees different to the way my parents lived. Totally different. The way we, we use the city, the way we interact with other people in the city. Um, I mean, it's, you know, the internet, social media. It's, it's all... That's changed society irreparably. There's no going back, you know. So 
uh, we're going to be chasing our tails to try and mend some of that damage. So that's a good point. I'm going to throw it out to you guys. So we've got two volunteers with microphones on either side. So if you have a question, just put your hand up and we'll get a microphone to you. So make sure you wait until the microphone gets to you before you ask your question. So yeah, please raise your hand. Um, there's someone down the front there and there's someone up there. So yeah, if you guys want to just maybe grab that person up the back there. Hi guys, um, thanks for coming in today. Uh, it's been very interesting. Um, I feel like a running motif um, in a lot of these dystopian cities is, uh, it touches on the, the issue of like overpopulation um, incre and increasing scale that comes with that, I guess, of our cities. It becoming more vertical, it becoming more cramped. Um, I guess I'm just wondering kind of what comments you guys might have or thoughts in relation to that. Um, what it may do to people kind of on the ground psychologically and practically from the urban, pl urban planning perspective, kind of how that comes into play. Um, yeah, anyone want to address that, Stephen? Can I? Yeah. <laughs> so I think one of the really interesting things about the way, you know, the question that, that my research was asking is what are the stories we tell ourselves about movies? And I think that depiction in Blade Runner of the really cramped, super dense city is the ultimate nightmare is an interesting one um, and it's interesting that I think um, you know there's a lot of observations that when you look at Blade Runner now you go oh maybe the city's kind of cool like we like in a city you know kind of hipster living and there seems to be a you know a lot of like good street vendors and they seem to actually have a public transport system that's better than the actual LA public transport system and so I think there are interesting questions about whether we still define that um, super dense city as a nightmare city um, and wh or whether we've come around a bit and we're maybe a bit more sceptical about the old, less dense suburban environment. We're a bit more sceptical than we are about, than we used to be about the suburban environment. So that's my immediate reaction. I think though you're lucky that you live in a city, uh, Melbourne's a lovely city by the way, I really like, I've lived here for periods of time and I really, I really like it because I think it's at the, it still is at the correct level for a city. I think cities do get to a point where they go beyond functioning. I don't know what the magic, you probably know what the magic number is. They can get overpopulated and there are certain cities around the world that don't work anymore. They used to work fine and now they don't work. Um, trying to drive from, uh, in Los Angeles from another city that I spent a long time in, from you know one side of the 405 freeway to the other to get to crossing over the 405, no one does that anymore. They used to be peak hour, you'd avoid that. Mm. But in the last probably 10 years now, people don't. So, so that's really affected the way people live in, in, a, in a city like Los Angeles. People just don't go anywhere. Mm. They try and, you desperately try not to have meetings with someone in the valley if you're down at the beach. You just don't do it, you know. Um, so that's really, a, that's fragmented the city like never before, you know, and it's because its traffic system is, is falling apart. It just cannot cope. And they've got freeways everywhere, but it's just beyond, beyond, beyond that now, you know. So I, I do think, you know, overpopulation, is a, overpopulation is, a, is a really serious world issue. It's one of our biggest issues. I mean, we talk about climate change, which, of course, is also a serious issue, but climate change is a result of overpopulation, really, when you think about it. So, so that's really the, 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 the biggest issue, I think, facing us. And cities are going to have a very hard time coping... With uh, with the populations as they as they build up in the next but few I think years. Melbourne's on the way. Uh, Melbourne's population is rising, and you know how many times do I drive down a street and suddenly there's a big hole in the ground and you see all these new high-rise apartments going up. I mean, where are these people going to park? Um, you, you can already feel that kind of stress on the city in terms of driving and parking and you know getting to places. We're and, on the way. This is, this is the question as to whether technology saves us from that or whether it. Well, and this mm. is, I mean, this is coming from a very privileged place. We talk about, like, Melbourne getting busy. But if you've been to a place like Mongok in, um, in Hong Kong, it's the, the most densely populated suburb in Hong Kong. And there's people living in really tiny apartments there. You know, but actually all the data we have in the world, um, you know, from places like the UN, from Hans Rosling's research into population, 
says that uh, education is the key to liberating us from, you know, the, the ills of overpopulation. So if we think of technology as a great enabler of delivering education and, you know, flattening some of the access to those things, enabling people to work more remotely from, from locations, some of the solutions to this actually could be technological ones really feasibly. Or we'll do a Soylent Green and big corporations will start feeding <laughs> people to us. Mm. Yeah, Logan's so run. Is yeah. there another question around the back there? If you just want to throw your arm up and we can get a microphone. No? Oh, yes, there. <laughs> you there. Just wait for the microphone to come across. Uh, so about the urban design, do you think there will be some new material or recycled material to be used uh, in building and uh, other urban design area? This is the first question. The second is, uh, uh, how could uh, the community actually get involved into the new urban design? Mm. So I think, yeah, two questions. One. Uh, recycled materials going to be a thing and community involvement in these future designs. So, yeah, I guess recycled materials. Does anyone want to? Well, Angela's mentioned yeah. the ultimate, of course, already, which is the Soylent <laughs> Green solution. But yeah. uh, So there's um, a lot of really amazing work coming out of Italy at the moment in terms of 3D printing and basing that on reusable materials, so getting organics and, and putting them in and then pumping them out again. And, and they've done some amazing work, like recreating reefs and things like that to help the environment. So there are some interesting technological solutions going on there. There's, I mean, there's just more than you can name in terms of recycled materials. I think in Sweden, aren't they using uh, garbage? Um, and they have no waste left over because they're recycling it for um, the production of, of power. Like oh, the, right. That's amazing. Yeah, replacement of electricity. And, they, and they make, they've made, successfully made, uh, beef alternatives that don't use, have a smaller carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. And so food is definitely going to be moving in that direction for mm -hmm. sure, you know. So that's like the soil and green but it, alternative, but it's a little less... Yeah. Frightening. I think the problems are <laughs> governments, aren't they? Politicians. Well, I think, and the other Stop question, I guess, maybe, <laughs> Stephen, what is the community's role in this in design? Like, do, is there a communal influence on how our future is going to be designed, or does it, by necessity, need to be kind of much more singular and controlled? Oh, I, I don't have a great answer for that, except for the glib one, which is <laughs> these are really big questions that we as a society are going to have to work out. I know it's a kind of like stupid glib answer, but I think that's right. You know, um, I think if we wait for technology to save us, that's a mistake. Um, there are so many questions, and, you know, Angel's just alluding to some of them in terms of, you know, where the cars go and all this kind of stuff, um, that, uh, yes, absolutely, it's a whole-of-community situation. And whether you think it's a climate collapse or whether you think it's just the um, the kind of progression of technology um, and the sort of march of technology that Alex was just referring to, the changes are so profound either way that there's a lot of big discussions we need to have. Yep. And it ties back to what Vanessa mm. said about education. You need education about what's happening to the, the planet and and how we do something to change it. We move to Mars. <laughs> so let's try to squeeze in another question just before we completely run out of time. Um, yep, just you right there. Yeah. Um, Alex, before you were saying dystopias make the best films um, in terms of looking at this, and particularly now because we've got climate change, resources becoming depleted, we've got information wars, hacking wars, global issues that are becoming more and more prevalent. Um, from a cinematic point of view, and I guess across the panel as well, what is a current issue in urban design and technology that hasn't been explored enough? Like, what do we actually need to learn more about and talk about in film so that us as a society can actually look at them as, you know, um, experimental ideas that we could potentially find resolution through cinematic understanding of it? Mm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, look, science fiction doesn't really provide answers. You know, we just ask questions because... We're not that smart, quite frankly. You know, if we were, we'd be 
building real cities, I guess, you know. So I don't think we can ever really uh, solve problems through science fiction. All science fiction is good at doing is holding up a mirror to our world, and it's always about something that's contemporary and, and happening right now. It's always, even though it might be set in the future, kind of amplifies what's mm. currently, you know, a problem, and that's the source of a, of a good science fiction narrative, you know, a good science fiction drama. You know, um, and so there's countless issues right now. There's so many of them, you know. Whether or not we're allowed to explore them in movies any longer is a whole other conversation, which isn't part of this, this panel. That's a whole other issue right now because, we're, you know, science fiction movies are, are, are dying, essentially, you know. Well, people think that Marvel comics are science fiction movies, or, or Star Wars is, but, but they're not, you know. Um, so, we, you know, we've, we've spent our whole conversation talking about movies that were made you know, 20 years ago or, or longer. Um, uh, so, so that's a whole other that's a whole other issue. You know. Um, did anyone else on the panel want to address that idea? No. <laughs> we could probably let's just do one more question really quickly. Yes, you down the front there. If you just want to get a microphone. Um, it, it strikes me that uh, often the centre of the city or the metropolis is where we project all of our cinematic anxieties upon, um, but actually most of us live in the suburbs um, and I was wondering if anyone has any comments about the, the cinematic visions about um, suburbia. Well, I think, Stephen, you almost wrote a book on that. Well, like, yeah, I literally did, wrote I, a book I, on I, that. Like. I did write a book on that. It's, um, <laughs> so, so settle in, everybody. Um, yeah. Great last question. Uh, Let's go. No, I, I, what I will just really quickly say about that is... Um, uh, there's, there's certain ideas that are well expressed in film um, and one of the interesting things about the suburbs is one of the biggest problems in suburbia is the, the place, the non-place, the place that doesn't have a sense of place is one of the classic complaints about uh, suburbia and I think it, it becomes a challenging thing to film in an interesting way. Um, I think cinematic depictions get drawn to the metropolis uh, and drawn to the big city because um, the same things that make cities exciting, the same dynamism, the same visual excitement, the same flurry of activity are the same things that we're drawn to in cinema. Um, and it takes... It's not that you can't do interesting things with the depiction of suburbs, and there are plenty of interesting suburban films, but it is just a different set of challenges um, and it, it, it leads you to a whole lot of different places and, and I really could just settle in for an hour, so I won't. But um, just... Yeah. I think one of those... It's really interesting to think about what ideas about urban places are sort of most naturally communicated in films. And that was essentially what my book was about. Well, also, I think, Alex, in iRobot, you did create an interesting distinction between the city and the suburbs, and you presented the suburbs as, yeah. a, as a grungier, more, more older, less technologically inclined area yeah. versus the, the shiny metal and glass in yeah. a city. And is that how you actually envision the separation? Well, yeah, and, and even like Metropolis is, uh, you know, the underground is representative of the suburbs and the above grounds representing of the urban centre as well. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's again, I have to give a flippant answer, which is truthful, which is, you know, cities just are cooler places to set, you know, big sprawling science fiction movies in which is why we end up in city centres, you know. I made a movie, actually I made a movie, shot it here in, in, in Melbourne called Knowing a few years ago and at the, end of the, at the end of the movie we blow up New York City, you know, and the rest of the world as well, but New York City, it starts off there, you know. And I actually premiered the movie in New York and I had a journalist in one of these roundtable conversations give me a really hard time about the fact that I blew up New York City in the in in my movie and it's like almost he took it personally that I blew up your city <laughs> and I'm like man you, I'm not the first guy who blew up New York City in a movie you know I'm <laughs> uh, the end of a very long line of guys who specialize in blowing up New York City you know and you should take it as a compliment that I blow up your city because New York is always representative of the ultimate uber classic city and of mm. course you want to blow it up if you do an end of the world story you know but he, he didn't get it. <laughs> so we might actually have to end on that note we've got to wrap up now but um, thank you everyone for your participation and coming and we hope you guys make the most of this year's festival so please check out miff.com.au slash talks for more Miff Talks events please book lots of films and don't forget that you can see Alex's debut feature Spirits of the Air Gremlins of the Clouds at 6.30 tomorrow night at Acme 2 
And you can also stay in touch with Melbourne Conversations by liking the Knowledge Melbourne Facebook page. But for now, could you please join me in thanking our brilliant panel, Alex Proyas, Angela Ndalias, Stephen Rowley, and Vanessa Tohalka. Thank you, everyone. Knowledge Melbourne is brought to you by the City of Melbourne. It seeks to thoughtfully connect people, place and technology so that all Melburnians are supported to adapt and thrive in Melbourne's future. Visit Knowledge Melbourne on Facebook to learn more or tweet us at KnowledgeMelb.